to take my text again from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue through this letter. We have two and a half more chapters. Thank you for your patience as we look at a book that often is overlooked except for key passages that we know well and we're in a section that we might not otherwise study real intently. So Paul says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 11, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak, howbeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. So my title this morning is A Servant of Christ. And under that heading, we'll look at Paul's service to the church in his suffering and in his care for the church. Now, Paul has been telling us, as he told the church in chapter 11, why he is asking them to endure a little while in his folly or in his foolishness. He is going to engage in boasting like the false apostles are boasting in their superiority over Paul. This is distasteful. He said twice, I'm speaking foolishly. He wants them to know he's using much sarcasm to awaken them to their foolishness. And so he does this in order to rescue the church from the grips and the clutch of these false teachers. While Paul has told us why he's doing it, he only spends really one verse boasting. And he does that in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Well, I am also. And then he climaxes, are they ministers of Christ? I am much more. And you can hear his foolish boasting, but he tells us, He is doing this because of others who boast and glory in the flesh. And he's made clear as to why he is answering the fool according to their folly. The difference in the ministry of these false apostles who claim they are ministers of Christ is that they use their ministry in the service of others to bring people into bondage. And that's a contrast that Paul wants us to see in verse 20. Ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage. The word suffer means you're putting up with men, these men, who bring you into slavery. So Paul tells us their fivefold description of their ministry. They're enslaving, devouring, taking, exalting, and smiting with cruelty. They serve themselves so they devour other people in verse 20. Devour means to strip one of their goods. This is the word Jesus used concerning the Pharisees or false teachers which devour widow houses. They go in under the pretext of long prayers and they use that as justification for their piety and they sneak into the houses and they strip them of all that they possess, a vulnerable part of our society and culture in the church. In Philippians 3, Paul would say, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an example. Because many walk, of whom I have told you before, and tell you even now, weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why should you find good examples to follow? Because there are many that walk who are enemies of the cross of Christ. How are they enemies? Four ways, Paul would say. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, 
whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So these men, like the false teacher, Paul, or teachers, Paul is warning the church at Philippi about, which he warns over and over in the New Testament. Serve their own bellies, therefore they devour people. They take of people. They deceive people by fraud. To serve your belly means you serve that empty cavity in the gut for which you find something horizontally to bring you fulfillment in your gut. And of course, that's a physical illustration of something we try to do in the soul. So to serve your belly is to try to find something that will fill your emptiness which will never fill it rather than filling it with Christ. And so these men who serve their belly bring people into bondage and then they devour and they take by fraud and then they exalt themselves, which means to lift up with pride and also take dominion of others. If you serve your belly, you've got to devour in relationships and take dominion because those people are the means of serving your belly. So they take dominion. That's interesting because Paul said in his ministry in the second chapter, or first chapter, you remember verse 24, Paul does not take dominion over their faith, but he's a helper of their joy. For by faith you stand. These men who serve their belly, they take dominion over people's faith because they're robbers of their joy, because they want them to stand in their own wisdom as they are, and they move them away from Christ. They are robbers of your joy. And Paul says there's many today. And then lastly, they smite. This is a five-fold description of their ministry as they claim to be servants, but they serve to exploit people. They smite. This could mean literal, as the high priest told the servant in the book of Acts to smite Paul on the face, which he did. But it's also a metaphor for an insult, to upbraid people, to severely criticize people, which is likely the meaning here. And what were they criticizing the people for and taking dominion? That they would have regard for such an inferior, weak apostle like Paul. By contrast, in verse 22, Paul will acknowledge, in fact, they were Hebrews. But in Philippians 3, Paul says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means he was not a mixture of Hebrew and Gentile blood like the Samaritans. He was pure Hebrew. His mother and father were pure Jew. But it also meant he spoke the Hebrew language, which was not so prevalent among the Greek-speaking Jews after the dispersion of Babylon. Most of them spoke Greek. But Paul was pure Jew, and he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Well, they were Hebrews too. Are they Israelites? Are they of the covenant people being Jews? Paul says, I am also. Are they of the seed of Abraham? Meaning they could trace their lineage at that time back to Abraham. As the Pharisees were acknowledged by Jesus, I know you're the seed of Abraham, but you seek to kill me. So Paul knows they're the seed of Abraham and they boast in that. Paul was of the seed of Abraham, but also Paul was of the spiritual seed of Abraham, for which he calls that into question with the false apostles. Three rhetorical questions, but the fourth one, Paul distinguishes himself from these men. Are they ministers of Christ? Is that what they claim? I, superlative, exceedingly, far above, am I more. Now, what do you expect Paul to say here? What do you expect two football fans who are wrestling over who's the best team? 
well, we've got this many championships. We've got this many rings. We've got this many trophies. We've got the best coach. What do you expect Paul to say? Brothers, I have spoken at more conferences. I have written more books. I have done more podcasts. I have raised more money. I have traveled more miles than any of you. What does Paul say? I have suffered for the cause of Christ more. Because these men would not dare suffer in their triumphalism theology, in their over-realized eschatology, which said, we're going to bring what is only reserved for the resurrection today, which means Jesus died. You don't have to suffer and take a cross. Jesus died to make you healthy and prosperous. And that was the triumphalism of many of the Jews in Jesus' day and the Pharisees and the Messiah they were looking for, which would bring them that very thing which is why they rejected the true Messiah in part. So Paul now is going to show that he is a servant of Christ first by his suffering. So what we'll do is look at this list of suffering. This is the third one in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, second one. He'll give us another short one in the 12th chapter in one verse. And he gave us another list in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a total of five lists for which Paul will detail his suffering. But here, he gives us greater specificity and greater detail than any other place in the Bible. And this is how he will foolishly boast in his weakness as they try to claim superiority over Paul. So first look at a detail, or a rather general description of his suffering. He will say this in verse 23. Uh, 23. Paul, how are you more of a servant? In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. And in deaths, oft. Often, many times. The word labor means intense labor with trouble and hardship. So it's not just like going to a 9 to 5 job. This work he did was so intense, it was laborsome, difficult, hard and troublesome. Now, he could be talking about his self-support, which he mentions in this chapter, where he was willing for the sake of the gospel to preach freely without receiving anything from Corinth, which he did. Often when he established a new church, he would not receive that church. He would work with his hands. He could be referring to that. He also could be referring to the toil and labor of the gospel. Likely means both of them, because both of them are in this chapter and letter. But what follows likely Gospel labor is what his focus is. Why? Because because of his labor in the gospel, he received stripes above measure. Likely didn't receive stripes for making tents, but by preaching the gospel, he was beaten above measure and he went into prison more frequent. Now, if you consider the timing of when this letter was written, there are four times in the book of Acts where it says that Paul was in prison. Philippi, Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome. But the time period of this letter, he could only be referring to Philippi because Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome happened after this letter, which means prisons, plural, means there are likely times when Paul went to prison that we don't know anything about. In fact, much of what he says here is not found in the book of Acts. So this is what he means at the time of this writing. But probably he was in prison even more than we know. In prison, more frequent, in deaths, often, which means subject to moral 
mortal peril. He was at grave risk of losing his life when many times. So the service of Paul as a minister of Christ was embodied in his humility and meekness and gentleness that expressed itself in a willingness to suffer for the cause of God and for the sake of the people of God, which he did over and over and over. So that's a general description, but now Paul wants to get specific when he refers to deaths. What are you talking about, Paul, when you say deaths? It's like when someone boasts, they sometimes start to embellish. They talk about generalities, and then as a wise person, you say, well, just name one. (laughs) And they're like, well, I can't give you one. Well, Paul says, as a matter of fact, I can. In fact, I'll give you five, three, one, three, one. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Deuteronomy 25, when there's a controversy, a dispute between two people, they brought it to the judges. The judges would justify the righteous, condemn the wicked. And in that condemnation, if it was appropriate, they could give lashes to the guilty party, up to 40 lashes and no more. Well, the Jews often wanted to stay clear of breaking the law, so they gave him 39 five times for a total of 195 lashes. Now, if you went somewhere and you said something in a dispute, and of course the dispute was over the gospel, and you were beaten 39 times with stripes, would you go back to the same place again? Probably not. But Paul goes back to the same place, meaning the synagogue, again and again and again. Even though he was sent to the Jew, uh, Gentiles, he continued to go to the Jews in every city. Why? For his great love for people, willing to be beaten, showing that continuing to go back to the Jews, knowing full well that he is likely to be beaten again with 39 stripes, and it happened five times. As far as we know, it could have been more. Could you imagine looking at the back of the Apostle Paul? It must have been ghastly. Next, he would say, thrice I was beaten with rods. Now, rods was the method of Gentiles for beating. The Romans beat with rods. The Jews would beat with stripes. So he's referring to being beaten by Gentiles. We find that in Philippians chapter 16, or Acts chapter 16, about the Philippian church there when he went into Philippi. They beat him, which means they gave him blows. That was likely with rods because that's a known method of the Roman way of punishment. So five times, 39 stripes except one. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. This was the method of execution. On his first missionary journey, he went from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra. And at Lystra, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium followed him there they persuaded the people and they stoned Paul. Now that's the only re- the account that we have in the Bible of Paul's stoning and that's probably the one he's referring to. He was stoned and then they dragged him out of the city, either by his feet, by his arms. They were supposing that he was dead, which means he was knocked unconscious. He looks like a dead man. And the disciples follow out and they surround Paul, likely weeping, the Bible doesn't say, and Paul gets up brushes himself off, and he goes back into the city and then makes his way to Derby. Now, what is he going to do when he gets to Derby? As a minister of Christ, he's going to preach the gospel. 
And then he goes back from Derby to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, telling the disciples and confirming their souls that they would continue in the faith and that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. That's amazing, isn't it? And then lastly, or second to last, thrice I suffered shipwreck, and then a night and a day I have been in the deep, which means for 24 hours, either on one of the three shipwrecks or another one, which again, the Acts 27 shipwreck would not be included here. This was written before Acts 27. 24 hours he floated in the sea. I don't think I'd do well floating in the sea. I think of sharks and whales and I'm assuming that's the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know what kind of aquatic life is there. But the 24 hours, he's floating. He's on something that keeps him afloat. All for the sake of being a minister of Christ, for the gospel, for the cause of God, and for the good of churches. Now, here's where we make our first application. And the question is, how do we make an application with this? We're not apostles, and certainly... We probably can safely say none of us will be subjected to this kind of hardship, this kind of suffering. So here's the question, though. How did Paul prepare himself for this kind of suffering? And how would you prepare yourself? Should we get up one Sunday and say, brothers and sisters, we've decided in preparing for what suffering may come our way, we have designated next Sunday as Stripe Sunday. Now, what that means is, sisters, you get the sanctuary. We're asking that you all put stripes on one another's backs, three or four, nothing major. Men will go outside. We need to do about 20. Not to be alarmed, we'll have medical staff on hand in case someone gets out of hand or the bleeding is so profuse that we need medical help. Now, the point is you can't prepare for physical suffering, can you? How do you prepare for that? How did Paul prepare? Two ways, and this is how we prepare. First, his mind was prepared. Surely he must have remembered the words of Jesus that were read this morning. He said to Ananias, Go thy way, he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name among the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, because I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here he is doing it. So he's prepared in mind because Jesus has told him this is going to be the course of his ministry. And it was. Surely, by what Jesus said and by the things Paul wrote to the church, he had a mindset, he was prepared mentally for suffering. We can prepare that way. But has Jesus said that to us? In fact, he has, hasn't he? In Matthew chapter 10. It is enough for the disciple to be as his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call them of his household? You're part of the household of Christ. And the great assurance you have is that when you're called devil and you're reproached, that gives you the assurance of not being out of the house, but actually being part of the house. Because they called your master Beelzebub, or he has a devil. They will call his followers devil. So Jesus has just prepared us on a basic level of suffering as a Christian. Just being reproached, laughed at, and mocked as a follower of Christ. Now that's kind of a, a lower level, but that's part of what Jesus said. 
Paul would say in his writing to Timothy, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's how we prepare ourselves mentally. We know that suffering and hardship comes to us being Christians if we live godly. And we also know just living in a sin-cursed world. We are subjected to hardships for which God is over. And so mental preparation is needed so that we hear the words of Peter when he said to the church that was suffering, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't think, I'm shocked. I can't believe this. Why is this happening to me? Would be the meaning of the word strange. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is designed to try you, but rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering, so that when His glory shall be revealed, you shall be exceeding glad also. So Peter is telling the saints who have been suffering, and apparently they were going to go through a much greater degree of fire, don't think this is strange. In fact, prepare your minds for something that is somewhat normal living in a sin-cursed world, and it should be normalcy as we live godly in Christ Jesus, according, obviously, to seasons that we live in. Even in the book of Acts, there was a season when they had rest from persecution. But there were seasons where it was more intense. So Paul, I think, prepared his mind for suffering, but he couldn't prepare for the event of 39 lashes save one. How do you prepare for that? But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, his heart was prepared. And your heart needs to be prepared. See, the great preparation is, is the heart. It's not the body. I have no idea what that feels like. But what will keep you from a departure from the true of living God if the lashes come down on your back or jail time comes. It's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 when he tells the elders at Ephesus. He said, Now, behold, I am bound in the Spirit. He's going to Jerusalem. And he knows that bonds and afflictions are waiting for him there. Bonds means prison, which happened. From that time, three more times, at least that we know of. And afflictions. Tribulation is waiting for him. How is Paul prepared for that? But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. The word move means to account or to regard something. What is Paul not regarding the bonds and afflictions? He's not regarding them in such a way that they move him off a course that he thinks is right and he thinks is of God to go to Jerusalem with the monetary collection from the saints. So he is unmoved, even though he knows that there's, there's more beatings coming, and they came, and there's more prison coming, and it came. Ultimately, some time later, leading to his death. So Paul is not moved by the certainty of these things, I think because he's saying he didn't count his life precious or valuable to himself. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here he has a low view of his life or he had a low esteem of life that would be unhealthy and not biblical. What he's saying was what he said in Philippians chapter 3. He has counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord for whom he suffered the loss of all things and he counts them but dung that he may win or gain Christ. 
How does that prepare the heart? Well, listen to the next part, and then we'll make that connection. He said, I count not my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course, my race with joy. Now let's suppose Paul counts his life dear to himself as ultimate value and as ultimate precious. His life physically, his life with possessions, his life as he likes it, his life with comforts and conveniences, his life meaning his job, and I'm trying to apply that to some of our application for us. Let's just suppose you can say right now, I kind of like my life right now. I mean, I know everything's not perfect, but I like my job. I I like my family. I like my house. I I like life. Now, suppose you count that as ultimate value. And now you go in the context of suffering. If your joy is ultimately in your own life, then you're not prepared for suffering and you shrink back out of it. But Paul has joy set before him. He wants to finish his course with joy, which means there's something more valuable than his own life. His life has value. But there's something he's counted as supreme over his own life, and it's that for which he's finishing with joy. And again, that connects Philippians 3. It's the excellency of Christ Jesus the Lord. It's the gain of Christ. It's the glory and the joy of what's set before him that he endures crosses, pain, shipwreck, beatings, stoning, floating in the sea, and all that he says here. Paul's heart is prepared for suffering because he has joy set before him. Jesus calls on us in Luke 14 when he says, Likewise, if we do not forsake all that we have, We cannot be His disciples. To forsake means to renounce it. Now what does that mean? Why can't we be disciples? Jesus is not saying, I'm not going to let you be a disciple. He's saying your heart won't allow it. Your own affections will not allow you to follow me. Because you haven't counted all things lost. You're counting your own life, your own possessions, your own work, your own things as ultimate value. Therefore, when the day comes, that fork in the road of bearing a cross or not, what happens? You hang on to life and you let go of Jesus because your heart was not prepared for suffering. We could say this about the rich young ruler. Jesus said to him, okay, you want life? One thing you lack. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't prepared for that because he had great riches and he went away sorrowful. Now let's take that same man, let's say he took up his cross to follow Jesus, but his heart is for his riches and there comes a day when discipleship calls him to give up and experience the loss of some portion of his wealth. He can't do it. He can't be a follower. Do you know why? His heart won't allow him to follow Jesus. So Jesus isn't putting his hand up and saying, don't follow me. He's saying you can't unless your heart is prepared to renounce everything for the supremacy of his glory, for which Paul did. Now that's a daily preparation, right? We can't prepare for suffering by somehow inflicting it upon one another to see what it feels like. We prepare our minds. We prepare our hearts. 
And Paul was prepared because he wanted to finish his course with joy, not because he was just a tough and rough guy that could take a beating. In fact, it seems that he was kind of a small guy whose body and constitution was not so rough and tough. But what kept him going was the glory of Christ and the gain of Christ and wanting to finish with joy because his heart was riveted by the glory of the Savior that loved him and came to him on the road to Damascus. That undeserving, tyrannical terrorist, Saul of Tarsus, came and arrested his soul just like he's done yours. So, Our first application then is not that we have to figure out how we can endure suffering and prepare our hearts that way, uh, but we prepare our minds knowing Jesus, what He said about it and all of the Bible, and we prepare our hearts ahead of time so that when the time comes, whatever failure we have, whatever difficulty we experience, that because of who Jesus is and what He is as ultimate value, then when the goods and kindred have to go, and even this mortal life, Also, what sustains us is the glory of Christ. Now, the next thing Paul wants to do in the next category is danger. So we looked at the deaths. He was very specific at some of the deaths or the uh, risk he took. Now, he wants to tell us the dangers. Paul was never safe. In fact, as a Christian, if we... If we exalt safety to the level of idolatry, we could be in trouble in the coming days in this country. I mean, we are living in an unsafe culture, aren't we? I mean, the borders are open, all kinds of people coming in. Are you safe when you go on the college campus? No, you could get gunned down. Are you safe in public? No, at any time you could be on the other side of a bullet. And I could have five guns on me, but if I'm the first one that goes down, they do me no good, right? The point I'm making is this. I'm not making a point of not to have guns. I'm making the point that you're not safe. There's no such thing as safety. And Paul was not a safe man. Listen to what he says. He uses the word peril, which means danger. So he says in verse 26, In journeying often. Journeyings just means transportation, traveling. He walked most of where he went, like Jesus. When the word is used, when he journeyed to Samaria. How did he get there? He traveled by foot. So here Paul is traveling all over the place by foot. Now most of you here probably love to travel. I mean, you want to travel and see the world. Some of you here have already got plans for traveling this summer. I mean, it's a good part of the year, isn't it? I get to go beaches, mountains, travel, travel, travel. I don't think Paul liked traveling, frankly. Nobody ever said to him, sit back and relax and enjoy your flight. Because he never enjoyed one in the sense of what I'm talking about and in his own words. So Paul, tell us about your journeys. In danger of waters, in dangers of robbers. Now he pairs these five different groups and the last one he stands alone. Waters here is streams or rivers, places you had to cross in traveling in the Roman Empire. Robbers... They were often subject to robbery, sometimes at these streams, because the people were most likely caught off guard at the greatest time. You see the man in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls among thieves. That was a common experience. But Paul is doing this for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is in danger. 
He's not safe when he crosses streams, and he's not safe when he does so because there's robbers all around. Likely he was robbed a few times. Don't know that for sure, but he was in danger. In danger of my own countrymen, in danger by the heathen. Countrymen, Jews, heathen, Gentiles. So you, you travel. You don't want to go to Pakistan. You don't want to go to Afghanistan. You want to go to France or maybe Italy. There's no nation that Paul can go to. If it's Palestine, he's in danger. If it's Gentile nations, he's in danger. Wherever he goes, he is in danger. That's the next pairing. Then he says, in perils or in dangers in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. The point is, people and places. If he goes in the city and he travels there, he's in danger. So I'm going to go out of the city, out to the countryside. He's in danger. Well, I'm going to go across the sea. He's in danger. And then lastly, the standalone is in danger among false brethren. I think he only used this phrase one other time, maybe Galatians. His point is his danger is losing the Corinthian church to these false brethren. That was a danger that Paul has experienced for which he is writing this letter. Now, how do we apply this to our life today? We, we're not in that much danger, but the fact is we're in danger. Every time you get in your car, with the amount of texting that's going on, the, the, the fast speeds that people drive recklessly, you are in danger, but you're willing to take the risk. So here's the question. Was it right for Paul to risk his health like that? And is it right for you? Now remember, you're risking in some degree just by living. Maybe small, maybe a risk you're willing to live with, but we risk every day. And the risks are going up exponentially. We obviously know that Paul was right to risk because he wasn't just living recklessly. You know, bungee jumping off of the side of a mountain, that's pretty risky. You know, you have to assume the risk there. Maybe sign the waiver that you won't sue anybody. Or jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, that's kind of risky. But he's doing it in the cause of God. And beloved, we are called on to risk, yes, our health and safety to some degree in the cause of God of the gospel. No, it's, it's not the kind of risk Paul took. Nevertheless, God calls on us to do that. And so when, we li- when I lift my well-being and my own health to the level of idolatry, I'm not about to risk anything to obey Jesus Christ. Right? Now, now hear me. To be safe and have good health is good. That is not bad. We're talking about for the sake of the gospel and what Christ calls us to. 1 Peter 4, 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So Paul has already warned this church, you've been suffering different levels, reproach, evil speaking in some greater degree. And he warns them in chapter 4, In about the 15th verse, there's a fiery trial that's coming that's going to be greater. Okay, so that's pretty risky. That's dangerous. Fire is an image of pain and trouble. That's not a good image there. And Peter tells them ahead of time. What is it that's going to produce this risk in well-doing? Obedience. Obedience. 
Well-doing means on a right path of living. And that path, according to 1 Peter 1, 14, is holiness and godliness. On the pathway of holiness, there is a risk of danger of suffering. And Paul, Peter makes it very clear, it's coming. It's coming. So I take that to mean obedience in the cause of Christ means there are risks we should embrace and move forward in well-doing. And those risks for the church in that day meant poor health. When anybody beats you, that's not good health. That's not safe. So we've got to be careful that in our safety and in our wanting to be in good health, we don't transfer that over and say, then therefore obedience is off the table if it means for me. I lose something like a comfort or a convenience or a job or something else more severe other than just reproach. That, that's painful, but something physical like jail time. See, a prepared heart and mind is ready to take the risk of obedience in well-doing. So to deposit your soul to God by faith is to deposit in well-doing, although suffering is the risk. Now how do you know you deposit your soul into God's hand, which is an act of faith? The same way you know or you deposit money into a bank. What's your confidence in the bank keeping your money safe when you deposit it there? You keep going back to the same bank. What's the fruit of knowing you've deposited your soul into God's hand for keeping? You keep doing well. You keep obeying. That's how you know you're trusting God with your soul is that even in crisis situations or as we're talking about, hardships, you stay on the pathway of obedience to the Word of God because you've made a deposit and you trust Him. You trust Him with your life. Now, how is God keeping your soul is the question in the context of 1 Peter. Well, He says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Well, they will appear no more. In the end, they will perish. But the righteous that God is saving, how is He saving them? Through difficulty, that's the word scarcely. Through the suffering that we risk in obedience, God is saving the righteous, which means they're already right with God, so the suffering and what God is doing is not atoning. That's been done. But He's sanctifying them through their difficulties and hardships. So you deposit your soul to God, And the way He's going to keep your soul is by testing it and bringing it into the very fire that obedience causes because God is loving you and He's saving you. He's sanctifying you. And so the last way we deposit that into the hands of God, this is a mental faith action that we're doing uh, toward God, is that we understand that We only suffer according to the will of God. So that's what Peter says. That's not the will of command, meaning Peter's not saying go out and suffer. Obey God and and go suffer. That's a result of obedience. He's speaking of the will of decree. 
God is decisive and ultimate in who suffers for obedience and who doesn't. He is sovereign. He will determine ultimately who obeys and they don't suffer and who obeys and they do suffer. And you can see that in Hebrews 11 at the end. So the application for us is in obedience we are assuming risk. Whether we're witnessing to people or just obeying as Christians or telling them our views from a worldview perspective of the Bible. And and today it just means, however gentle and meek you say, well, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and a man is this and a woman is this. We can define a woman very gently and, and, and lovingly. That will mean some form of hatred. And it's happening all over the place right now. So we assume risk like Paul, not to the same degree, obviously, as an apostle and not to the same degree of the suffering he encountered. But nevertheless, the expectation of Scripture is that in well-doing, we will experience some level of hardship. And so we commit that into the sovereign hands of God. He'll determine in this room who ultimately is going to experience and what level of experience of suffering you will for your obedience. Our task is keep doing well. Trust Him. And know that through that, He's keeping your soul by sanctifying it through the hardship, and know that He's a faithful Creator. You can make the deposit in the hands of Jesus. He took your sin. He gave you His righteousness. He bore your burden. He can handle your life. And what what is the faithful Creator doing? Why did God create your soul? To glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. And He's using the difficulty to get you there. So trust Him Embrace the danger of being a Christian. Not by running into it, but by knowing obedience will mean we assume some risk. We risk every day. And that will mean when our hearts prepared, we are ready to honor God in the suffering because He is over it, He rules over it, and He's saving us through it. And then the last category that Paul gives is deprivation willingly. Deprivation just means lacking something that's necessary or essential. So this last group in 27, Paul is willingly depriving himself of things. And there's three pairs uh, conjoined by the word and and then two standalones. So he says this in verse 27, in weariness and painfulness in watchings often. Weariness is the same word for labors, coppice, Painfulness, they both mean intense hardship and labor. So he returns to his labor, and then he says what that means is sleeplessness often. That's what watchings means. So Paul's working all day, whether it's with the gospel or he's working all day building tents. What happens? If he's going to write a letter, when does he do it? All night long, or at least without sleep. He willingly deprives himself of sleep to preach the gospel freely, to the church at Corinth. And that means painfulness, weariness, trouble, hardship, so he doesn't sleep. Second, joined by the word and, in hunger and thirst, which means in fastings often. He went without food at times. He was hungry, he was thirsty at times. Apparently his labor did not provide him 
all that he needed at times. Other churches were sending money where he was. See that in Philippians? Sometimes he didn't have enough to eat. So he willingly was without food at times. I don't know how much, what degree. Just It says here in fasting's often. And then the last group, in cold and nakedness. He was cold, naked, meaning he was partially clothed. He didn't have all the clothes that we have. He didn't have, I don't know, five jackets and things like that. Now, that was a willing deprivation. He could have had five jackets, I assume. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that when you come, bring my cloak, which I left with Carpus, I think he said. I'm kind of glad to know Paul at least forgot one time. I forget a lot more than that, but he said, Whatever reason, he left his coat. Could you bring my coat? He was in the Mamertine prison. He's very cold. So Paul willingly deprives himself for the cause of God and the sake of the gospel. And then lastly, our last point here. That's his suffering. We made some application there. Now, Paul is a servant of Christ in distinction from these they claim they are, not only by his suffering and his weakness, but by his care. Verse 28. Beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory or boast of the things that concern my weaknesses or infirmities. That's something that the false apostles would have never done. That requires humility, which they didn't have any, according to Paul. So what is Paul saying here with the word care? It's the same word for anxiety. Not only those things that are without, things you can see, things outside, but things that we couldn't see, the care in his soul over the churches that made him anxious. Is that good or bad? Here it's good. Matthew 6, Jesus said it's, it's bad. It's a lack of faith. Right? Negative anxiety happens when our heart treasures something to the degree that the threat of losing it causes us to be fearful and anxious. Jesus says that's a lack of faith because we're not trusting Him for His love, His care, and His provision, and His rule over that object, which may have value, right? I'm not saying nothing has value. But when it's raised to the level of ultimate value, it produces anxiety and fear and worry. And Jesus says, that's a lack of faith because you're not thinking about my care, my love, my provision, my grace, and my rule over your entire life. But here, this is good. Why? Because Paul's anxiety is not about himself. It's about the church of Corinth's relationship with Jesus. And you can see that again in verse 2 of this chapter where he said what? For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And he's anxious that they won't make it. Because these false apostles are drawing them away from Christ. So his anxiety is not about himself, it's about the church and their relationship with Jesus, and that's a good care, that's a good anxiety, that is a good concern. 
And how does this concern express itself? Verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended? Scandalizo. Falling away from Christ. And I'm not indignant about it. He burns with indignation that these people are being lured away from their foundation and head, which is Christ, their husband. That some would-be person is drawing away the bride from her husband makes Paul burn with indignation. Now the reference to being weak is probably back to the words he used in the first epistle when he said, to the weak I became as weak that I may be all ma- by all means win the weak. What was the weak? It was the weak in conscience. It was the Jew that was a Christian and thought, I can't eat meat offered to idols I never have. Paul was in the category of a strong conscience. He knew he could eat meat offered to idols and drink a glass of wine. He knew that, but the weak brother didn't know that. So did Paul assert his strength and his liberty and say, well, that's your problem. I'm drinking, I'm eating. No, I'll become weak with them. Does that describe you this morning? If it makes my brother to offend, I won't eat meat as long as the world stands, which means meat offered to idols. So Paul says, I become weak with them because a brother's weak conscience can cause them to fall away from Christ. If you boldly encourage them to go against faith in Jesus, I think this is sin, but he does it. I'll do it anyway. That's to move them toward making shipwreck of their faith. Paul says, I won't do that. Now these men would have done that. They didn't care. So what? They're serving their belly. And then Paul says, who is offended and I burn not. His great zeal and his deep anxiety for all the churches was their union, their relationship with Jesus Christ. So if he must needs glory, and he needs to at this point, right? Desperate situation calls for a desperate measure. It's distasteful. He does not want to do it. He's very clear what he's doing. He's using sarcasm, but he says, if I needs glory... I will boast of the things which concern my infirmities. And then he ends with an unusual case of when he was in Damascus, he was let over the wall in a basket. Apparently, they heard what happened and he was there and they did a garrison around the city. They're going to kill Paul. They want to apprehend him. So Paul gives this account. Why? Leading into the next chapter, he refers to an occasion of his weakness. So he comes into Damascus as a bold, proud, confident Saul. And then Jesus brings him down to humility. And in Damascus, he starts preaching the gospel. And they want to apprehend him. And then how does he leave Damascus? As a weak apostle. The very first act that seemed to demonstrate that God's grace comes through weakness or My grace is sufficient for thee, for in your weakness is Christ's strength made perfect. And the first occasion in Paul's ministry was Damascus when he was let down in a basket. You know, it was said that the Romans used to demonstrate they'd get rewarded if they could get over the wall first against an enemy. That showed their heroism, their strength, and their ability. Well, Paul comes down the wall in a very humiliating way, a a, a, a basket like of ropes, I think is what the word is referring to. Uh, some kind of bin 
and others let him down. Now that's going to set the stage for chapter 12 where Paul will tell us about his visions and revelations in a very humble way because these false apostles were talking about their visions and revelations. So it forces Paul, or Paul is willing to talk about the same in order that God would rescue this church. So beloved, let us remember, what is it that prepares our heart for any kind of difficulty? A mind and a heart that sees Jesus as ultimate even over our own life. And likely none of us at this point will be called to give our lives physically for the cause of Christ. That's just speculation. But we are called to give lesser things. And so we are prepared and ready only as we treasure Christ's love and who He is. Then we are prepared, not for the pain. We don't know what that's like. But heart is prepared to stay with Jesus and will doing. And it's right to to risk for the cause of God, meaning in obedience, it's going to require that we expose ourselves to the risk of being laughed at, to being reproached, and any other things that are happening in our society. And and the, and the, the risk is going up very fast. If you read some of the things that people are being subjected to and the animosity that is occurring, those risks are rising. But because God loves us, He cares for us, He's ruling over us. There's no risk with God because the future is certain because He is the future. He is the future. And we can rest and make a deposit every morning by faith into His hands unto a faithful Creator. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We we confess our need for You. You're our help, our strength, our rock, our fortress, our salvation. You're the strong tower that we need to run into daily and find safety Safety from apostasy, safety from departing from you. Safety, not physically, because in this world we have trials and tribulations. In this world we are subjected to events and circumstances that affect us both physically and mentally and spiritually. But we are not subjected to it without your sovereign rule, without your decisive rule over this world, over every inch of this universe. It belongs to Jesus our Lord. And so, Lord, help us to rest in your care, your love, your provision in such a way that when we are called upon to experience difficulty and discomforts and losses, even of a minor kind, that we, like Paul, could say we are servants of Jesus Christ. And by His grace, we want to be perfected by Your grace. We want to have the strength that we continue in the pathway of well-doing, albeit with much sin that needs to be repented of yet on the pathway to glory. For your name's sake and your honor, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.